This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with behaviour guru, Serena Dean. Serena's career in the veterinary industry spans almost 20 years. She's worked in many different capacities, including as a senior veterinary nurse in both emergency and general practice, education and training positions, and other leadership and management roles. Serena designed and implemented the Best Behaviour Program for Green Cross and currently creates content as a speaker and guest lecturer for multiple industry groups. She's the Managing Director of Stress-Free Pets, an animal handling education program for vets and vet nurses. Serena is a self-confessed continuing education and study addict, armed with an MBA, a degree in veterinary technology, and certificates in veterinary nursing and training and assessment. She's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to behavior, and also a great example of why we should dream big and make those dreams a reality. Hi, Serena. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. I am keen to know if you're listening to podcasts at the moment and if so, what are they? Because I'm in a podcast drought. So yes, I do listen to podcasts. I'm also super keen on audiobooks. Um, Me too. I actually drive a lot. So when I'm driving, I like to feel productive and I find audiobooks and podcasts um, make me feel like I've actually achieved something when I'm in my car, um, Mm -hmm. when I'm not making phone calls. So um, in terms of what I'm listening to, though, honestly, there's not a lot of it nurse-related content in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I find my preferences depend upon what's happening in my life at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of my choices are pretty eclectic, to be honest. Mm. Um, at the moment, I'm jumping between, randomly enough, Australian birth stories, which I'm <laughs> fascinated about yeah um and other general parenting podcasts because I do have a nearly two-year-old so that's trying to answer all of my unanswered questions for me yeah and then I also go through other things like leadership-based podcasts so Holly Ransom's Coffee Pods is a good one yeah um, and then I really like your fun podcasts as well so Hamish and Andy is a big tick for me mm-hmm. and I love a really good random TED talk so mm. I used to watch a lot of TED Talks on my laptop, but mm. now um, now that they've got the uh, TED Daily, um, there are p- there are plenty to listen to in terms of pods. Mm. I've got to get back into TED Talks. I haven't I haven't gotten into them on podcasts yet, but yeah, I used to download certain ones and sort of watch them too. But I listened to so many of not the Australian birth stories, but the the American one when I was pregnant with my son, who's also nearly two. And I used to go for like my afternoon walk to try and keep fit for my birth and everything and listen to these stories and just get so freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny. I didn't 
even know it existed until mm-hmm. after I had Lani. So I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll take it either way. But I'm absolutely fascinated with the stories now. So some of them are very interesting and most definitely scary and others are incredibly amazing and you just go, wow, that's that's something that I never would have thought of. Yeah, totally. And where are you from and where do you currently live? So I am a Gold Coaster in Queensland. So I actually live in the hinterland on the Gold Coast on a small property with my Border Collie and my husband and daughter. It's I effectively get the best of both worlds out here, which is really nice. So I've got heaps of space. It's really quiet. Um, I'm up on a hill, so I'm kind of in amongst the trees, but I also get to drive 15 minutes and I'm at the beach. So I get I get the best of, of everything I feel out here, which is really, it's a nice place to be. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's away from the Gold Coast, but on the Gold Coast. Yeah, beautiful. I love the Gold Coast hinterland and the Sunshine Coast hinterland for exactly yeah. that reason. It's, it's honestly a beautiful place in the world, so... It is. It's stunning. And is it quite cold there at the moment? It is. So we're, oh, well, it's cold for me. So some people probably wouldn't think that this is too cold, but it's around 14 degrees at the moment. Um, But, you know, it does get down under under 10 often in the middle of winter. Yeah. So, and my house is a raised house, which means we do get very cold floors, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's um it, it's it's cold um you know for you because you're acclimatized to there. I remember when I moved to Brisbane from Melbourne and I just moved in the middle of winter and was laughing <laughs> at people <laughs> and laughing at the person reading the weather on the news wearing like earmuffs and a beanie and you know, <laughs> "Oh, it's going to get to 15 tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, "Oh, bless you people. You think this is cold." And then like a year or two after living there, I was like, "Oh my god, it's so cold. What is it today? Like 11?" <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Whereas other people think that that's a a beautiful balmy day. Exactly. It's all relative. And you have had a long career in veterinary nursing. I think you've been in the industry. Well, your profile says 18 years, so if that's up to date. Um, it's probably slightly more than that now. Yeah. You might be, yeah, a little bit longer now. And um, and you've got a really interesting story of where you started and where you are now. So how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing? So foot in the door. So my very first role um, was straight out of high school. Um, I started off as a cattery attendant just on mm-hmm. the weekends. Um, randomly enough, I actually got that role because a friend of a friend knew that I was off to uni to study vet tech at the time. Uh-huh. Um, and they knew that they were looking for just a weekend um, cattery attendant. So they sent me off for an interview and I got that, which is awesome. Um, and then as I was at uni, I they trained me up to be a vet nurse um, and I started um, working there part-time as a vet nurse whilst I was continuing my study at UQ. Mm-hmm. So that was my very first forte into the industry and it just kind of grew from there, I guess. Mm-hmm. And where was the vet tech degree out at Gatton then? or? Uh, yeah, so the first, um, so I actually did it, I was the second year to graduate the vet tech degree. So that wow. just um, proves my, my age. So I graduated <laughs> 2004. Uh-huh. Um, so the first two years were out in the Gatton campus and then the final year was at St. Lucia. So yeah. that was when the um, vet tech and vet science were both at the St. Lucia campus before they moved out to the amazing facilities they have now at Gatton. And now the vet 
science degrees at Gatton too. And my when we were in Brisbane recently for the VNCA conference, my husband took my son on the City Cat and mm-hmm. over to St Lucia to look at where he did his degree because I think yeah. they were in the last year before they moved um, vet science over to Gatton. And he said it was like a ghost town, the old oh, no. um, vet school. <laughs> he yeah. said that um, <laughs> there was still like things up on the notice board and stuff and oh, like wow. a textbook here or a, yeah, like a Chinese food container there. Like he said it was kind of like it was obviously like a bit of a hurried move and that nothing had been um, done with it. So I think that was a little bit – he went to go walking down memory lane and it was almost like that, you know, that horror movie or that, you know, oh, horror no. trope where you get there and it's just like a ghost town and did that happen? Like did I imagine that I actually went to uni here? Oh, wow. It's like the end of days but yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so um, – and then – so that was while you were at uni and did you stay at that clinic for a long time or where did you sort of go to next? What direction yeah. once you graduated? So I – um. I actually didn't know where I wanted to land, I guess, whilst I was at uni. So I did a lot of work experience. Part of the degree you get to do, it's fantastic in terms of the experiences that you get um, whilst you're studying. So I did lots of um, experience. I did the emergency centres and then I did um, specialty centres and I even got to go out to the Australia Zoo and work out there for a while, which was incredible. Um, And then obviously general practice as well. Um, so I actually ended up getting um, offered a position um, just before I graduated at the emergency centre at the university. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for um, a couple of months before I actually graduated mm-hmm. and then obviously graduated and I started working as an emergency nurse um, upon graduation. Then I decided I actually wanted to travel. So I, I um resigned from that role after only probably six to seven months in the emergency um, field. For me, um, I loved emergency, but I also found the hours incredibly hard. I think you need to be a very special person to do emergency nursing or emergency um, vet work long term. Mm. Um, so for me, I think it was an amazing entrance into the vet nurse world because you learn so much so quickly in those sorts of environments. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was there for about six, seven months and then I actually left Australia and went overseas for five months. Um, I had planned on doing the UK vet nurse thing, mm-hmm. um, but it just never happened. So instead I did a whole pile of traveling and then came back. Um, and when I came back, I contacted a few veterinary clinics and started my GP career. Oh, nice. That's important to do though, like when you finish uni too, to be like, hang on a minute, I think I should have had a break and oh, yeah. traveled for a bit. Yeah, and it, I mean, it was always on the um, it was always part of my thought process is that I did want to travel. I just didn't know when, where, or for how long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, you know, the stars aligned as such. One of my friends was overseas, and she happened to um fall in love whilst she was over there, and her mm-hmm. wedding was in South Africa. So wow. we had to make the trip um yep. over there, and it just happened to coincide with the end of my graduation at uni. So I graduated. Um, December, the wedding was, um, February, so mid February. And that's where we went over and started my, my travel from then on out. Yeah. Great. And then were you at a GP practice in Gold Coast or Brisbane? Yeah. Gold Coast. So, um, at the Madrabar Animal Hospital, um, Mm -hmm. I was there for, uh, um, 10 years actually. So 10 plus years with that particular clinic. Um, I effectively class them as my family now. So it's (laughs) an incredible, um, clinic. I learned so much in that clinic. I they are my personal friends now. Um, mm. You know, it, they 
cemented my love of the industry, that particular clinic did. So so lucky to land in such a great clinic for your first kind of long-term job out because it really can make or break you, I think. Oh, 100% agree. Um, I I couldn't agree more in terms of you can be absolutely passionate about your job in the industry, but if you don't enjoy turning up to work every day because of the people that surround you, um, it does make it very, very challenging for you to continue your love for the job. And where did you go to after that? Because I know what your job was before you were doing what you were doing now. And I know that that still wasn't quite it. So where was your next leap? So from there, um, I have always been really um, keen on teaching other people and I guess helping grow other people. Mm So I'll actually take a little quick step back from there because it allows you to get into my headspace as to how I got into behavior and the rest of that. Mm. Um, so when I was working at, uh, the mantra bar clinic, um, I had some amazing people who worked with me who really supported and uh, I guess challenged me in terms of what I wanted to be when I grow up. Um, you know, what kind of nurse did I want to actually be? Mm. Um, and they allowed me to, I guess, look into the, the different or the niche areas of veterinary nursing and try to see whether or not I was interested in um, I'll use the word specialized, even though that's, you know, mm. I, I didn't do further, um, you know, this specialty study, mm. but they allowed me to really immerse myself in particular areas in the clinic. Mm. Um, so I started off really interested in pathology and then I moved into being really interested about radiology. Um, <laughs> and then um, our senior nurse and I guess she was a practice manager at this stage um, was wanting to start a puppy school. And she said, well, Serena, you know, a, you would be good at this. Would you like to do it with me? So that started my love of behavior. So she, Mm. um, and also my love of educating people. So that was the, the initial stages of my, my interest in it. Um, and then from there, I guess, as a lot of people do with, with nursing, you don't know what your next step is. Um, Mm whether you're going to do further study and more advanced technical nursing or sort of where you wanted to go. Um, and at that stage, we had um, joined the Green Cross group and there was a role going for a regional veterinary nurse trainer. So I applied for that role and I um, very fortunately got that role. Um, and that was, it was so much fun. I got to teach the school-based trainees the certificate um, to in animal studies um, and really grow them in our industry. So these were our Mm. new baby nurses that we got to um, train and obviously educate um, and then also let them out into the world and see where they go. And there's some of these school-based trainees that, you know, I'm talking, you know, eight years ago now, um, who are now, some of them are in vet science, some of them have graduated vet, some of them Mm. have, um, they're working at specialty centres, some of them are practice managers. Mm. So to see them go from these high school students through to these amazing careers mm. is what really excited me about that particular position. Yep. Um, from there, after that, um, I actually ended up um, moving into the national um, training manager position. Mm-hmm. So that um, entailed continuing education for um, all vets and nurses um, at that stage. And then that's also where, um, and this is, I guess, where my entrepreneurial hat comes in. I've always got a thousand and one ideas in my head as to what I'd like to do next. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually pitched an idea to the managing director to 
um, standardize and launch a puppy school program across Mm -hmm. all of the clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, yes, that's a great idea. So I got the opportunity to actually create and develop um, my own, I guess, side thing inside my role, which was Mm -hmm. really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, um, that effectively became my my full-time role. So I ended up becoming the um, behavior services manager for the group. Um, and then after that, um, I moved into the national business manager role um, for the company and that was really good. And then I ended up uh, going on maternity leave and coming back and now I've started my own business. So um, there's been a lot of twists and, and turns in there um, and I guess my career has been through a lot of um, different elements um, in the industry and I mm. guess it, I, I get really excited about showing people that there's not just one linear line to get from a to, you know point A to point B depending upon what your career is or what your aspirations are in the mm. industry there's so much that you can do um, with your skills and knowledge yeah and firstly congratulations for getting um, I guess for um, working your way up into such a senior position um, for Green Cross which is a mm. huge a huge um, corporate giant in our industry and secondly isn't it amazing how um, you were enabled by firstly your bosses as you were in that uh, job you were in for 10 years with them saying if you were going to niche down what area would you niche down into and then you know letting you sort of try different areas and try different things on but that they were really flexible and responsive and then it seems like Green Cross was too because you were in this national training role but saying hey I think we could harvest standardized puppy preschool and them going sure and then them saying oh she's actually really good at this let's create a position around that and I think that's what we need to see more of in nursing rather than just having these um, positions and roles that have always existed and just trying to find the best person to put into it instead looking at the individuals and saying what are your strengths what are your interests how do we create a role around that for you if you're really into it exactly and you'll find people who have passion about their role will always go above and beyond and find things that you never would have thought of. Exactly. And I mean, that's how that's how you innovate. That's how you grow. That's how mm-hmm. you work smarter. Um, and people are really excited about coming to work every day because it's something that they genuinely love doing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, with any role, there's always going to be things that you don't love about it. Um, that's life. But yeah, there's, I mean, if, if that flexibility is there and the, the opportunity to really encourage somebody to figure out who they are as a as a person and what they want from their career Mm -hmm. Um, it drives a lot of ambition and um, I think it's a great way to to grow the people in our industry exactly so you had uh like quite a long and varied path as you say into getting to the position that you ended up in um with green cross and then that sort of um i guess that background in creating programs and also your natural interest in behavior led you to starting your own business which i want to hear about which would um segue into with where do you work at the moment and what's your role and what do you do from day to day yeah, so I actually have um, two businesses that I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to call my work or my job. Um, the first one is Stress-Free Pets. Um, it's an online animal handling and behavior program and accreditation um, for veterinary professionals. Um, effectively, the entire program there is to reduce patient stress in the clinical environment. 
And my other um, business is the Puppy Club, which provides veterinary clinics with access to up-to-date resources, training and client materials um, to provide their own branded professional-based puppy school to clients. So all of the client resources are actually white-labeled, which means the clinics can actually brand all that material as their own Mm -hmm. um, and that builds their brand equity and develops client relationships. Um, What I actually do, I'm the managing director for both of um, Stress-Free Pets and the Puppy Club. So my um, day-to-day varies a lot (laughs) in that. Um, But essentially what it means is that I manage all aspects of running of the business from organizing specialist speakers through to strategy and innovation and then obviously the financial aspect of it. But I'm so incredibly passionate about behavior that I actually work um, in the business as well. So, and I say in, in inverted commas there. Um, So I do things like presenting at conferences um, on a variety of behavior topics. I write a lot of the content um, and also I provide consulting services or customized based programs to clinics um, on behavior related things that they need. Excellent. I'm just looking at your uh, website now and seeing um, everything you're doing um, within the well, the stress-free pets one I'm looking at. And I can see that you've got an MBA as well. So that obviously has helped you to be um, in these managing director positions for both um, businesses and to have set them up. When did you do your MBA? I Yeah. So um, that was a, it was a three-year um I'll call it an interesting time is probably the way I'll explain it. Um, I was working full-time um, at the same time as studying my MBA, which is a feat in itself. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, I actually started the MBA as part of my um, uh, behavior services uh, senior leadership role. So, when I was in that position, I wanted to know more about the actual running of a business aspect. I knew I knew about the practical the practicalities of it, um, mm-hmm. but I really wanted to know the theoretical elements of it as well um, and delve a little bit deeper, I guess. I'm a bit of a, a learning um, junkie. I do like to to continue my continuing education as best I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I started it when I was in that first um, senior leadership-based position at Green Cross and finished it up um just before I started the national business manager role. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very interesting course um, and it was it was quite challenging to do so at the same time as working full time. No it no doubt put you in um, good stead though to do that um, managing or the, the national management role and are you like me you're like addicted to continuing education but then you um you have a couple of weeks or a couple of months where you've finished the last thing and you go, I'm going to sign up for this and you sign up for it and then you start looking at the workload and you're like, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I have a love-hate relationship with it sometimes. So I yeah. get obsessed about wanting to learn something new and I get really excited about it. And then, yeah, a few weeks in I go, do I have the time for this? What was I thinking? Yep. <laughs> um, but as long as the content is really interesting and I'm, you know, I- I'm interested in what's actually happening, then more than happy to continue and I'm also the type of person that doesn't like to um to quit anything so if I've started it I will most definitely finish it yeah yeah I think it's um it's really an, a really great way of staying fresh as well in in what you're doing and, and not getting um tired of it and I think we're in this industry you really need to continually be studying and learning because it's continually evolving and changing oh completely agree yeah it's um, not only from a technical standpoint from nursing, uh, but also, you know, just general 
leadership and, you know, personal well-being as well. Um, I think yeah. with education, one of the big things that I do is try to make sure that I balance it out with the technical side of it, but also, you know, I have some leadership stuff in there and then just some random stuff that I learn about, which I guess is probably why I like the TED Talks because you never quite know what you're going to get with them. So Yeah, I'm I'm the same. I, I would sometimes listen to technical stuff, but then I'll sometimes just listen to um, Tim Ferriss interview just some amazing entrepreneur and go, oh, wow, that's really cool. I had never heard of that concept before. Or I didn't know about that. So yeah, I think you can learn um, a lot from a whole bunch of people. And sometimes I'm listening to totally random things on podcasts, just like stuff you should know or just a history ones and, and that sort of thing. So um, I think we can never stop learning enough. And what's the best part of your job if you can isolate a favourite thing? Oh, that's actually really challenging. There's there's a lot of things that I love about my job. Um, I'm, I guess I'm a creative by heart. So one of the big things that I really love to do is that I get to continually work on these crazy big ideas that I have and mm. I get to actually bring them to life. So these things that are in my head, actually seeing them physically become something and have other people actually like them and use them and mm. be as excited as I am about them. That's, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I'm obviously super passionate about behavior. So actually being able to immerse myself in that particular content and continually learn about it. Uh, behavior is one of those areas where there's always something new that you you need to be on top of um, and I guess off the back of that is really sharing the knowledge and creating those courses and programs for other people so they can then learn and they can become inspired to either you know start I guess a, a new puppy school or to give great client advice or just to grow, grow confidence in themselves so they can ask to do something all those sorts of things really interest me. So I guess it's not one particular thing that I love about my job. It's that whole creative element and the the passing of knowledge. Mm, mm. Yep, I see what you – I know what you mean when you – when you have an idea or a concept and then you bring it to life and then you're almost like shocked, like, oh, it's a real thing and people are doing it and yeah. <laughs> following it. So yeah, it's really nice to to be able to dream big. And it takes a lot of balls, I think, to to do that, like to have an idea and to, to put, you know, I guess you're putting yourself on the line in a lot of ways in terms of ego and finance and all that sort of thing. So it's definitely not easy to, to, to dream big and to go ahead and put them into action. So good on you. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's one thing to have an idea, but to actually do it um, is, is really, really hard. And I would say everybody just do it. Um, do it. Because there will never be the right time. There will never mm -hmm. be, you know, enough, enough time. There will never be, the idea will never be perfect. So mm -hmm. just, just jump basically just do it <laughs> and you refine and tweak as you go and as you get feedback and you know so it's it's not it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be um you know the 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 concrete sort of concept you can just just get started just put your foot in the water and get in exactly I think that um our industry we are we're, a lot of us are perfectionists we do like to try to make mm. everything as perfect before we um, show it to other people or before we say it's ready. Yeah. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges um, is for well, for all of us, but for myself as well, is to just just let go and, yeah. and just release it into the world. So 
I think vets and nurses both have that perfectionist tendency. And my husband does a lot of um, orthopedic surgery because I guess up here we don't have a referring practice to send things on to. So a lot of vets in regional areas will just either amputate or, um, you know, I guess euthanize is usually the options when, when vets can't do orthopedics, um, unless the client wants to travel. But for us, it's, you know, 2000 kilometers or something. So, um, he was lucky enough to learn from a regional vet, a lot of, um, orthopedic procedures. And now we do, um, a ton of them. And his boss that he learned from was super old school. And he used to say to him, Matthew, don't let perfect get in the way of good. And that's how he sort of taught Matt about, um, orthopedic procedures. Like you will just be paralyzed if you going for perfect just get it good and that's all you need to do and I think that that applies to everything even what you're talking about at the moment like don't let perfect get in the way of good just you know just do it exactly that's a great way of um, explaining it actually it is now what's your routine when you wake up in the morning how do you set yourself up for the day this is actually really funny because I'm not a morning person at all. Um, so my morning routine with a two-year-old is I try to get as much sleep as I can. So yeah. I try to sleep in as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Um, then I will have coffee and then I guess the day just starts. Mm-hmm. So um, a couple of, I guess, routine things that we do is we always have breakfast outside on our deck. Mm-hmm. Um, I love getting outside. It's what makes me feel human a lot of the time. So, mm. um, yeah, just getting outside and being on the deck in with nature and having breakfast um, with the family, that's pretty much my routine because from then on out, it's getting the toddler ready and trying to get my day started um, before yeah. she ends up in, in daycare. So, yeah. It's also handy to eat outside on the deck when you have a toddler and <laughs> yes. you can call and the dog, dog over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that all the time if my dog um, goes into work with Matt to have like a blood test or something like that and we don't have him for the day and every time I'm eating with my toddler I'm like how do people live without a dog with a toddler like who cleans the floor (laughs) I know it's either the dog or uh, hopefully a robo vacuum because otherwise it just doesn't happen so (laughs) yeah yeah bring on the dog I say (laughs) and what weekly or daily habit makes your life better um, so getting outdoors, as I mm-hmm. said before, um, one rule that I have for myself and have had for years and years for as long as I can remember in terms of my work life is I will never have lunch at my desk. Ah. Um, and anyone who has, knows me, even if we are the, and well, obviously if there's a meeting and we have a lunch meeting, that's a little bit different. But if, if, if I'm generally working in an office, I will never have lunch at my desk Um, Even if it's just a walk around the building, I literally have to get outside. Mm. Um, I find with that daily habit, I am so much more productive in the afternoon. Mm. Um, If I don't do that, so if I sit down and have lunch at my desk by three o'clock, I will be eating every single chocolate bar in sight. I will have (laughs) as much sugar as you can possibly imagine. Um, and then obviously you can imagine the inevitable crash thereafter as well. Yeah. Um, so my productivity levels decrease dramatically if I don't get outside. Um, weekly, the other thing that I do, I, well, I guess in a similar vein, my body has to move and stretch. I can't be seated for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do Pilates, um, is something that I really enjoy. Um, but otherwise generally walking the dogs and just getting out and about and, going to the beach. Mm, 
that is a really healthy rule of not eating lunch at your desk. And I have been guilty of that for many, many years. And Mm -hmm. I think it really used to affect my circadian rhythms as well when I did it a lot in Brisbane, because I worked in a law firm where my office was on like the 20th floor or something. And I would get in at 7am. I'd leave at 10 to go get a coffee with one of the other guys I worked with. We'd go get takeaway coffee, come back. And then I generally would eat lunch at my desk and then I would leave at about six and it would be sort of, you know, 6pm in Brisbane, you know, maybe the sun was still up a little bit, but otherwise getting dark. I'd walk home or get on a bus and from the city to West End then, and then I'd be home. But my, I, I just never could wind down. Like there was something wrong. My body didn't get outside and clock what time of day it was at all. Like I was just in this little fish tank in the air conditioning all day. Um, And then I used to get insomnia and I'd be so tired, but I'd be like, why can't I sleep? And eventually I was like, I think I need to get my body outside so it knows what time of day it is. Yeah. Aircon and fluoros um, Mm. all day, every day. It's yeah, it just doesn't work for my body and apparently yours. So, (laughs) And do you have any strange habits or superstitions? Well, Yes and no. So I don't have any, I don't think I have any major superstitions or any major strange habits, but I do have, I guess, a little personal tick, which <laughs> is bubbles in a sink. So you know how after you've washed the dishes and the, you've emptied the sink and then there's bubbles in the bottom of it? Yeah. I have to rinse them down the sink. <laughs> I have to. So, and even if someone else has done the dishes and I come and look in the sink and there's bubbles in there, I will still have to rinse the bubbles down the sink. And that goes for washing your hands as well. I was going to say, I is that the same in the bathroom? Yeah. I can't deal with them. I don't know why. I don't know what it is, um, but that's my little random idiosyncrasy for you. Interesting. There are a lot of theories about shapes in nature and the way that um, we react to them. And they're actually words like specific uh names for a lot of these phobias or a lot of these things that you just go no I can't look at that like um like I I have issues I can't remember the name of it but it's it's a known thing where you can't look at um natural shapes that have sort of concave indents like some sort of corals and that sort of thing have them and when I realized it was a thing I was like oh my god and it's just certain shapes in nature sometimes parts of our primal brain are like no I can't deal with that that's right we're all in this together so <laughs> that's right yeah, I, I have no idea why but that's that's always how how it's been I'll just and it's it's completely I don't mean to do it some of the times. So I'll walk past and there'll be bubbles there and I'll turn the tap on. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, well, I'm now rinsing the bubbles out of the sink. So it just happens. And it's a perfectionist thing too. Like the job's not quite done unless you've cleaned up the cleaning stuff. So maybe that's what it is. I'm not too sure. So. Yeah. Can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? Look, I couldn't think of one specific thing here, um, but I think education. So education, education and education, um, whether it was purchasing it myself or whether an employer had purchased it for me or um, helped me out with the the funding of it, I think it all comes back to education for me in terms of my career. Um, So I, as we've said before, I absolutely love learning. I think it's incredibly important just to continually to improve yourself. So whether that is from a personal or professional level, it doesn't have to be technical. Um, but that's, yeah, I guess that's just who I am as, as a person. So that's 
in terms of purchasing, that would be um, the most important and I guess most valuable thing for me. Excellent. And I really agree. And especially as a business owner, like sometimes there are areas that I can identify we need to improve within our business and within our service delivery, but I personally don't have time to to learn about it. And it's really nice if you can find one of your nurses or one of your vets who has an interest in that area and say, hey, can we put you through this course? And they go and do it on their time. They're actually, um, you know, extending themselves in an area that they enjoy. And then what they bring back to the team is phenomenal because they can bring in positive changes and, you know, keep your practice up to date. So um, I was having a look at your website and I was talking to one of my nurses going, do you want to do this? And she's like, actually, I'm already doing this other one, but they're not, you know, I would look at doing that after um, because I'm just having a look. You've got a stress-free for vets and a stress-free for nurses and accreditation for a whole clinic as well. And I was interested in knowing more about the modules because one thing that I'm focused on in my practice this year in particular is improving our stress-free handling techniques for feline patients. So we're already, I think, pretty good at reducing stress, fear and anxiety in the hospital environment, but I'd like to go over that with you too um, and then get some ideas from you maybe about um, about stress-free handling techniques for cats. So for the first part of it, um, when I went to the Wasava conference in 2015, I went to all of the behavioral streams because that's kind of my favorite area too in like my niche, I guess, in nursing. And when I came back from there, we implemented ideas that might even be dated now. So we've got... Um, like some raised beds and we've got some cat igloos and a separate area in our waiting room where cat cages get put up on a table and dogs aren't in that area and we throw a pheromone spritzed sort of, you know, little cloth over them and try and keep it so that the dogs aren't accessing them or looking at them. And then obviously cats and dogs separate in hospitals. What else can we do to reduce stress, fear and anxiety in the hospital environment? And I guess for cats and dogs. Yeah, so the hospital environment's really interesting because it's challenging to control. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess when it comes to reducing stress, fear and anxiety, it all comes down to, can you control any stresses in the environment? Um, do you know what the triggers are for that particular patient? Mm -hmm. um, and then have you got any choice for the animal? So has the animal been provided any choice in their experience, I guess? Um, so in a consult room, that's... Um, it's much easier because in a consult room, there is very minimal stresses because you've reduced it all from the consultation perspective. You can have the animal choice, uh, providing choice by putting them on the table or on the floor or in a cat carrier. Mm -hmm. um, you can use your pheromones. There's obviously not a lot of stresses in terms of noise because you're in the enclosed room, but in a hospital environment, they don't get the option of being there most of the time because the reason why they're there is because of either a treatment requirement or a surgical requirement or illness or something along those lines. So um, to try to reduce stress, you've done, you've ticked a lot of the boxes, which is amazing. Um, providing the animal choice is probably one of the biggest ones in a hospital-based environment. So mm -hmm. in the um, in the actual hospital cages, allowing them the choice of whether or not they do want to use an igloo or be under a blanket or whether they want to be quite high up or whether they do require a something covering their cage so they're not able to see the other stresses that are in the environment. Mm. Um, but then the other things to think about um, and be mindful of is your handling techniques when you do need to actually 
um, make contact with them. So are you touching them only when they are having a treatment? Um, because that can obviously increase stress if they start to anticipate the feeling of fear or pain potentially. So actually just developing a relationship with that particular patient that's in for an extended period of time can sometimes significantly reduce the stress for that particular animal. And that can be as simple as, you know, just going up to the cage and offering them some TLC, which I'm sure you do anyway. Mm. Um, and then whether or not, and this is another challenging one for clinics, so some clinics will do it and others won't, um, is whether or not you actually allow the animal to have anything from home. So trying mm. to make the hospital environment feel as homely as it possibly can. So mm -hmm. whether that is do you actually allow them to have their own igloo from home mm -hmm. in the cage? Um, some clinics will say that's totally fine and others will say no because that means that we're now responsible for cleaning it and getting it back to the owner. Mm -hmm. um, so that's completely up to the, the clinic. Um, obviously using the right litter, um, so the same litter that the cat is used to or the mm. same litter tray that the mm. cat is used to. Mm -hmm. um, litter trays can actually be a, a big um, stressor for cats if Huge. it's a different mm. litter type um, or if they're unable to get into the litter tray or they feel um, you know too exposed inside that litter tray mm -hmm. um, but then other just you know little things that we can give them so are we able to give them um, any treats are we able to provide them with something that's more comfortable um, is the air conditioning up really really high can we provide them with some more comfort um, so yeah, it's a, it is a challenging one, um, but trying to provide them with a little bit of control um, over their choices mm. um, is probably one of the biggest ones that you can do in the hospital environment. It's, it makes a huge difference. And I know I bang on about this example all the time, but one of the things I came back with from the Wasaba conference was I was getting I was kind of getting like savaged by little dogs all the time when I'd <laughs> go and open the cage and try and reach in. And to them, it's really daunting because they're tiny and your big arms coming in and they do that where they like make a sound like they're possessed. And yep. like, there's probably not a whole lot of biting that they do, but it's really scary. And you kind of like jump and, and like, it's awful for them. And sometimes they're losing their bowels or, you know, anal glands or whatever it is. And so that was one of the questions I asked one of these, um, behavior specialists at the conference and she just said just give them a choice like open the cage and let them choose to come to you it might take yeah. you um a minute instead of taking five seconds or ten seconds but like call them and let them come to you and if they just choose to walk to you and jump into your arms then the whole procedure is going to be so much better so um and I just thought it can't be that easy surely that's not going to work and then it's something that I've always done ever since like as and we have it in our as part of our training modules you know what ways can you um, reduce stress for your patient or reduce the, the likelihood of getting bitten and it's uh, use squeaky voice and call the patient to you rather than reaching in to grab them so you just can't underestimate the power of choice I think with behavior yeah and just to giving that extra little bit of time yeah as well so you said you know it only takes an extra minute mm -hmm. and we're, we're all so incredibly busy in the clinical environment you know there's procedures and there's consults and there's um, things, you know, coming through the door that are unexpected. So it, that 30 seconds to one minute can feel like a, such a long period of time. Mm. But in 
the reality is it really is only 30 seconds. And you and make that it 30 up. Seconds, exactly. And that 30 mm. seconds is the difference between that animal being stressed or not. Mm-hmm. And if the animal is not stressed, it means that you're actually able to do the treatment quicker because you're not trying to wrangle them and you're not yep. having to, you know, ask three other people to come over and assist you exactly. and then, you know, sedating them and all the rest of it. Um, but in saying that, sometimes um, medication is a better option for some of these patients that are incredibly stressed. And I'm interested um, to know about that too. So when you've got really stressed patients, um, what sort of S4s and over-the-counters do you sort of work your way through when you're going down that list of, okay, where do we start with this guy? Yeah, well, I mean, with it, whenever we're talking medication, obviously we need to um, speak to the vet. So the mm-hmm. vet needs to be the one who decides whether or not that is a requirement for that particular patient. Yep. Um, but in terms of over-the-counters, Zilkine is um, probably the number one thing to, I guess, reach for now in mm. terms of uh, a new product that is available for us to utilize. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of actual medication, um, that, I mean, with, with anything in terms of prescribing or diagnosing, um, needs to be um, directed for the veterinarian to decide whether or not it is suitable mm. um, and then obviously which type they're going to use because there's so many different behavioral medications. Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to be a short-term thing? Is it going to be a long-term thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing to be mindful of is, you know, there are veterinary behavior specialists out there that have – they're so generous with their time. So mm-hmm. um, vet nurses and vets who are unsure of what to give – um, the specialists are more than happy to assist in how to manage the um, the plethora of pharmaceutical choices for those particular patients as well. Yeah. As vet nurses, we don't diagnose and we don't prescribe, but I've seen recently the need for, um, I guess I've realized the extent to which they need to be thinking of so many different um, things when, when figuring out which S4, but also what dose, because we had a patient who was really, really, really stressed. Um, and I can't remember the exact injury, but they basically needed regular bandage changes. Um, I think on one of their forelimbs and the first day they had to come back for a bandage change, they literally had to sort of be dragged across the waiting room and it was really traumatic. And so, um, our vet prescribed trazodone and said, okay, next time give this before you come back. And it was the, the patient then, um, the next time it was given the trazodone, I think it was giving, given trazodone with, it might've been in conjunction with ACE. I can't exactly remember. Um, but it basically had, uh, it was a similar dose to other patients that we've given the same protocol to, but they had a really severe reaction to it. And it was actually then treated by another vet, but it was based probably an indication of an underlying kidney disease or something like that, because um, they were just, you know, totally floored by this dose. Uh, And so when I was hearing about it, I was saying to Matt, like, well, what was the dose? Was it a high dose? And he's like, that's a really difficult question to answer because um, like one, it's off label and two, like there's a huge variation in dose rates, but look, he, here's, you know, the, the latest information and here's what we gave. And I could see like it was minuscule, but I was like, oh, it really is, um, it really is very complex. And then, you know, we we had taken history from this patient to know if there would be contraindications, but the client didn't want um, blood work done. So we weren't able to, to say, look, this patient isn't suitable for this particular protocol because of this underlying disease. So um, it is really complex when thinking about those things, which is why if you can use an over-the-counter like Zilkine first, um, particularly if it's something like bandage changes, whether your appointments are predictable, because I use Zilkine for my own 
dog and I know you need to use it a few days in advance for it to sort of have a benefit. So if you know you've got a patient coming in for an annual health check or a bandage change and you can get the owner on board, it is so much safer to try and use an over-the-counter first. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, the over-the-counters the over the counters are, they work brilliantly um, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's also placebo effect for the client as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so giving them something to make them feel like, mm. you know, the animal is less stressed and they are less stressed mm. and everyone's less stressed for um, for doing it um, sometimes is is nice to see as well. That's right. Um, the pet's taking the cues from the owner and that's why I was really happy um, even in storm season the first time we were able to recommend Zilkeen because people just want a pill. Like um, prior to that we were recommending um, thunder shirts for people that um, would come in saying, because we, you have terrible thunderstorms up here obviously in summer, um, but people would be a bit disappointed like, oh, I wanted medicine. <laughs> and you'd be like, thunder shirts work really well, just try it. They give a money back guarantee. Um, but people I think are a lot happier and we try and recommend, um, like a multimodal approach too. like now we would probably say, try a thunder shirt with some Zilkeen and, you know, make sure you're preempting the noise and the, the storm and try and get them inside. But I think people are happy that it's a little pill and it looks like medicine. And because as you say, that works on owners too, like, yeah. And I mean, the, on the other side of the coin, there is the, the reality that some pets do require medication. Totally. Um, it is just just their brains they that's that's what they require mm-hmm. um and it's a long-term thing and i guess uh in terms of discussing it with clients obviously the, the veterinarian is going to be prescribing it but there needs to be that understanding and that education that there is no there's no magic there's no magic pill mm, um, mm-hmm. for a lot of these behavioral um disorders and some of them do take uh, weeks to before they actually see a difference. Yeah. Um, and that's sometimes the challenge as a nurse is if a vet has prescribed something, um, a behavior-based medication for a particular behavior and the owner wants these immediate results, mm. um, we do need to provide them with the realistic expectations that mm-hmm. it's not just you have the tablet and all of a sudden mm-hmm. your animal is not doing whatever behavior it was doing beforehand mm-hmm. um, or, you know, you're your animal no longer has anxiety. Mm. So there are a a lot of things that we as nurses need to understand and know how to um, communicate that with the clients so they do have realistic expectations of the behaviour itself um, and the management plans that we're putting in place for them, whether that includes medication or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, all of the approaches need to work in together, even if the vet's prescribing an S4 or you're recommending an over-the-counter. As you're saying, it has to be done in conjunction with changes in the home or changes to the environment or changes to the routine or, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of the time you do see owners like just get really flat when you explain like this is how we usually address this issue like um we get a lot of owners talking about cats um with inappropriate elimination and I always talk about like what litter are you using how many litter trays do you have how many cats do you have you need one litter tray per cat plus one where are they located they can't be in this kind of an area or that kind of an area or this kind of an area and you see them like but I live in a really small apartment and there's nowhere else for me to put a litter tray and I kind of hate litter trays and you're like, this is having a pet. You need to, you know, commit to all these things. Maybe don't get another cat. Yeah, exactly. The, the reality check sometimes is 
is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. We got to look after our special needs little pets with their behavioral issues. And um, especially like my dog didn't have any issues until he started getting a bit geriatric. And now we're like, oh, mate, we'll look after you. <laughs> you yep. weird little quirks. <laughs> that was exactly the same as my girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? And this could be in a personal or professional capacity. Um. There's a few, uh, but one that I, I guess is quite um, particular to our conversation that we're having at the moment is when I first pitched my, um, it was called the Best Behaviour Program um, for Green Cross. So that's the standardised version of puppy school that I um, proposed to the managing director and um, the general manager of operations and the rest of them at the time. Um when I got the green light for approval for that one and I started to roll it out, I was obviously incredibly passionate and really excited about it. Um, and I was actually met with some resistance, which I wasn't prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that kind of took me a little bit back in terms of, was I the right person for the job? Did I actually do a good job? Um do I know enough? Am I good enough? So all of those sorts of questions roll through your head when you get met with resistance, mm. um, when you're so excited about something and mm. you, you know, um, you're launching it to the world. So, um, essentially I feel like I had, I, for lack of a better way of explaining it, um, imposter syndrome. So mm. you hear that, um, being spoken about often. And I think as vet nurses, we do get that a lot in a lot of different versions. Um, but in this particular example, um, that's sort of how I felt. I am by nature an absolutely tenacious person. Um, so to get over that, um, and I'm a big talker as well. Mm-hmm. So to get through that, I basically just kept talking to people. So talking about my vision, what it meant, why we were doing it, getting people involved, how they personally feel they could make it better, mm-hmm. um, and involving everybody um, in the decision. So that way we effectively grew it together as Mm. a team. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of victory, I really think everything just comes down to communication. And in the end, we all realized that we had the same goal. So, you know, why are we discussing or being resistant over very, very small things that are just small opinion-based things where Mm. we're all trying to achieve the exact same thing together. Um, And after that, once we sort of got over um, this, I guess the why is it happening um, and everyone felt like we were on the same page, um, it ended up becoming incredibly successful um, and was rolled out nationally and um, is still going to this day, which is really exciting. Mm. Um, So, yeah, communication um, and I guess – If I back up and think about it in hindsight, you know, because I was so gung-ho about it and so excited about what I was doing um, that I did forget to speak to people about the why and forget to speak to people about what was happening before I just went out there and did it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that why is super important. And in some of the more random podcasts I've listened to, I've heard a lot of people talking about that concept of start with why and if you start with why you can't go wrong because if you're saying well why are we doing this or why am I interested in this and then you can then you can sort of hone in on the hows and when you're collaborating as a group I think you all need to align on that why but you also need to be able to I guess 
it's hard when you have a, a vision and a dream because it becomes your baby, like one of your children. Um, and it can be hard, I guess, to separate um, yourself or your own identity from, you know, people who might be offering criticism or constructive criticism or feedback about that idea. I think sometimes it's really hard not to be like, oh my God, they don't like me or they don't like what I did. Or and you have to kind of step back and go, okay, I don't have to be totally attached you know, to this concept exactly as it is in my mind, we can collaborate on it. I can listen to this feedback and I can take it or leave it. So yeah, I think it's, um, it probably just requires, um, well, for me, definitely a little bit of, um, focused concentration on doing that. (laughs) You're a hundred percent right. Trying to, you know, in this example as well, you know, it was my career baby. It it's, I put myself, all of myself into it. So um, it is really hard to separate yourself from your your vision. Yeah. Um, and, you know, criticism is amazing and, you know, cr- constructive feedback is incredible um, and I am a big believer in continually getting feedback because mm. you'll never improve if you don't know, um, you know, how to improve or what people need or mm. other people's opinions. Um, but it is really challenging, particularly in those first um, stages where you're so excited about something and then you go, oh, okay, I didn't actually think about that before I started on this journey. Um, but it's a really, really good learning curve um, to be met with those differing opinions as to how how things should be done or just, you know, a different way of thinking. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, when you know how much work will be involved in opening yourself up to the possibility of what someone's suggesting, like, you know, that you're kind of going to have to scrap a whole bunch of stuff you've already done and go back to the drawing board and do something again. I think sometimes for me, just physically putting minutes and hours and days um, between when that suggestion's made um, can really help change my initial reaction to one that's a little bit calmer because initially I might be like presenting like, well, this is where we're at with this and if some feedback I get is, I don't think that's going to work because it's not factoring in this or that's great but we'd also love to be able to do this. Sometimes like my initial thought is, you want me to go back and do this again? (laughs) Like, oh, my God, and I'll be like, okay, um, I'll think about that and get back to you. And then a day or two later, I'm like, yeah, that'll be awesome. That'll be even better. Cool. And I'm pumped about it. But sometimes your initial reaction in the moment is you're just yeah. like, why aren't you saying you love this? <laughs> and I mean, the thing is, when you do look back, you you see this amazing thing that you've created and everything builds on itself. So as we said at the very, very beginning, you know, you just – just launch something Mm -hmm. that nothing's ever going to be perfect. You can keep building on it. And really, you know, I, the first time I um, pitched the best behavior um, program, we're talking over 10 years ago. Um, So to look back at what I originally pitched um, and to see how far it's come today Mm. is absolutely incredible. And looking at that journey where, you know, there were, um, major highs and some for personal major lows and mm. you just look at it and go, wow, we created something pretty amazing in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really special when you look back at it that way. So if you've got a dream or an idea, pitch it or do it or just you know, do it. Yeah. jump in. Exactly. Yeah, you can do it. Well, this might be a great time to have a little break. Are you cool if we come back shortly? 
Yep, more than happy. Excellent. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass reusable coffee keep cup. I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vet Nurse logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Serena. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Um, so to enter enter the world of vet nursing, um, one thing is, I guess, learn as much as you can. Um, absolutely find your passion um, or your why. So really be specific about why you're in it um, because that's going to help you get through the hard days um, that will come. Um, there are plenty of amazing days, but there will be really challenging ones as well. So just remember why you're there. Mm. Um, and the other big one for me is to reach out to people who inspire you mm. and learn from them. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that I guess comes from my personal experiences is where, as I said before, I am a talker um, and I'm very tenacious. So I will discuss my random big ideas with people and see whether or not I you know, they, they can become anything. So my biggest piece of advice is to don't be afraid to talk to people and reach out and learn from them because mm. those people might become your mentors. Uh, they, better yet, they actually might become your sponsors. Mm. Um, and that way those people will help you challenge your sh- yourself and they'll help you learn that you're really capable of doing so much. Um, in the industry. Absolutely. And I think um, knowing your why as well can help. Um, it can help you identify firstly, what kind of practice you should be trying to be working within. And secondly, it can help you identify those mentors and people that you should be reaching out to. So um, yeah, it's a really important question to ask. Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? Um, I guess in a similar vein. So don't be embarrassed to talk to people about it. Um, reach out and actually ask for help. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the biggest things with people that are struggling, um, particularly um, with their studies, is that um, you can become quite embarrassed that you don't understand a concept or that mm. you know, you've read this three or four times and it's just not clicking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure everyone's been there, whether it's that specific question or a different question that you find incredibly easy. Um, just reach out. There'll be somebody out there who can help you and maybe even explain it in another way um, mm. because we all learn differently. Um, you might hear it 15 times from the same person and it's just not, it just doesn't make sense to you. Mm-hmm. But then somebody else explains it in a completely different way and all of a sudden it just makes sense. Um, so yeah, my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to ask for help. 
And you might also, um, in the answer someone gives you, you might stop beating yourself up because I know when I was doing one of the final subjects of my cert four, it was like the anesthesia monitoring subjects. I remember, um, speaking to, to Matt and saying, I'm really having trouble getting this. Can, can you please um, explain it to me? And he was looking over what I was talking about. And then he was just like, God, no wonder you're having trouble understanding this. We spent X number of hours on this at uni. And then you're like, ah, well, actually this is totally normal for me to be finding this difficult. Exactly. And I mean, sometimes if you're studying externally, that can be another really big challenge for you is that you don't have that Um, you know, study session where you can Mm. bounce ideas off of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I mean, that's how I learn. I find it really hard to um, sit in a room by myself and, and just read or listen to a webinar. I need to be in with people to brainstorm those ideas for it to actually connect in my brain. Um, And it just comes down to your learning type and your communication style and all, all the rest of the styles that we have. Um, as to how you best learn. Mm, mm, absolutely. And are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear as a vet nurse uh, that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information? Um, look, working with the behaviour space, unfortunately, yes, there is still a lot of bad advice out there. Mm. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't pinpoint one particular thing because unfortunately there is a lot. Mm. Um, but, you know, you still hear people that are talking about um, you know, dominance-based theories. Mm. You still hear people talking about, um, you know, these stacks on approaches and alpha roles and mm. choke chains and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, obviously, that's the extreme side of it. But even just some general um, advice um, that you hear coming out about things like, you know, in puppy school, um, how to stop a puppy from biting, for example. Um, there are still some methods that you just go, oh, this is a young baby developing and learning how to communicate and to teach them that this kind of physical force um, is how you get your way mm. or is, you know, is asking the dog to or, or effectively getting the dog to shut down, um, it, is, it really upsets me that that's, that's what our new pet owners are hearing mm. in some elements, mm. um, whereas we really should be guiding new pet owners with the correct and most up-to-date advice so they can actually develop long-term relationships with their animals and obviously we can reduce the amount of behavioral um, conditions that we see or mental health conditions that we see in these pets moving forward so Mm. um, that's a bit of a it's a bit of a hard question because unfortunately yes there is still a lot in the behavior space that is um, unfortunately either incorrect or very outdated that's still out there. You've just made me think of one um, from when I was doing puppy preschool and you might actually be able to explain it better than me, but it was one that I always wanted to explain to owners, which is it's to do with um, puppies in their brains not being time travellers. So if the owner gets home and the puppy's, um, you know, soiled on the carpet, you know, they've urinated or defecated, I would try and explain to them, this was not your dog punishing you for going to work um, and you rubbing your dog's nose in it or yelling at them when you get home is just useless because they can't time travel back and be like, oh, I'm being yelled at now for this thing I did four hours ago. Like they just don't link it? Like, is that something that you sort of focus on too in your program? 
Um, yes and no. So we focus more on um, normal social development stages of the puppy. Mm-hmm. So providing those realistic expectations to clients about mm-hmm. what their puppy should be doing at that particular stage in their development mm-hmm. um, and giving them that expectation of that, you know, it is a baby. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be able to hold its bladder for eight hours a day mm. um, if you've locked it inside. Um, or even if it's an adult dog, sometimes they, you know, that's a very long period of time mm. to hold your bladder if there's no exit um, mm-hmm. for them to go. Um, and then how to appropriately manage that behavior afterwards so you can guide the puppy um, to do the behavior that you would like them to do. So, mm. for example, we need to teach them. Um, so, for example, if we're using the, the puppies gone to the toilet whilst we're away, um, actually teaching them where to go. Mm. Um teaching them how to get there because it's a puppy and they get excited and they get um, distracted really, really easily. So mm. for them to remember how to get to this, you know, the door to get outside and remember that they need to push it uh, because it's a doggy door mm. or that sometimes they're inside and sometimes they go to the toilet on a puppy mat or sometimes they go outside and they go on the grass, that can be incredibly confusing for a a puppy that's learning um, what the world is. Mm. So um, I guess it comes down to more um, from a puppy school perspective, not a general training perspective, but a puppy school perspective. It's more about um, getting that clear expectation with the clients about they've got a baby in their house. That's right. As opposed to trying to train, in inverted commas, um, them all these behaviours because sometimes they've just got to go through the developmental milestone before Mm. you can do certain things with them. And that's why I love um, puppy preschool because it helps with that. It it helps with the bond, I guess, because you have an owner that has realistic expectations and can be forgiving of certain puppy behaviors rather than um, thinking, oh, this puppy is being bad because it doesn't want me to go to work or whatever, you know, things that might ruin that bond. Instead, you've just got an owner going, well, of course that happened. This is a puppy. Like, let's rethink how we're going to get them doing the right thing. Another one of my absolute favorites when it comes to toilet training is she knows what she's doing wrong. She mm. stands in front of me and stares at me while she does it yeah. and then just walks off. And you're like, yeah, it's because she's a baby and she needed to go to the toilet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're there and she's looking at you going, what are you doing looking at me? That's right. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> and, right. Oh, now here's a leaf and I'm going to go chase it. Yeah. So um, it's, yeah, it's just giving them that realistic expectations of your dog is not doing it because they are you know, despite you, they're not doing it because they're guilty. They're not doing it for any particular reason. It's because it's a bodily function and they need to do it. That's right. (laughs) Very innocent. They're not plotting against you. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And in what ways do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? Um, I talk. I talk a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I, my husband knows everything about the industry. I swear he could work in the industry because (laughs) of how much I talk to him about it. Um, but I mean, essentially I, um, we, I debrief with him is probably the best way to explain it. So I will talk about the good, bad and ugly of everything that's happened. Um, and sometimes I'll just have a good old cry, Mm. um, because that's what I need sometimes to get it out, Mm. um, in the open. And I think once, once I've got it out there, I feel much better. Um, and you know, I being, I guess, a a typical human, I do overthink um, things often. So I'll, if I don't talk it out, it be, always becomes much bigger in my head. Yeah. Um, I find so if I 
don't um, talk about it out loud, um, then yeah, I do start uh, talking to myself in my head, mm. even though that makes me sound <laughs> mm. interesting. Um, but yeah, it will become much bigger than it really is if um, I just keep it in my my own um, brain. But I guess my my husband is also where um, he's he's very logical, so mm. he he sometimes sees it from a different perspective than I do and he mm-hmm. gives me a really good perspective sometimes. Mm. So he goes, okay, well, you know, yeah, understand this is what's happening but have you thought of this? Yeah. And I go, well, no, because I was, I, I was inside this, you know, experience with myself. So yeah. um, I find talking works really, really well but my other big things are music. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big, big music fan, getting outside, um, dancing around, acting like a two-year-old um, really <laughs> is how I um, de-stress um, and humour is a really, really big part of my life. So I enjoy a good glass of wine and just having a massive laugh with, with my friends and family, Yeah, um, whatever that happens to be. Um, I try not to take myself too seriously. Mm-hmm. So I think trying to have a have a laugh at the end of the day is really, really important. Laughter is the best medicine. I've always been drawn in my life to either people who have a good sense of humour and make me laugh or who people people who laugh really easily at things that I say because <laughs> I can have a laugh with them as well. So, yeah, I definitely um, think that laughter as as um, as a medicine is um, something that for, for me I cannot underestimate the power of it. And um, so. in all honesty, there is n- nothing more confidence boosting than other people laughing at your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Keep those people close. Exactly. And um, I think we've touched on a few of the solutions here, but if you feel overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? Um, so, yeah, or the same as all of the above. So mm-hmm. I talk a lot. Um, you know, if I'm really overwhelmed, I will have wine um, <laughs> and I will, you know, I'll go out with my girlfriends and I'll, you know, let it all out um, and once again cry if I need to. Um, mm. But, yeah, uh, it all comes back to I, I try to talk it all out and then just try to try to enjoy my life and try to have fun with what's happening. Absolutely. And um, what's the main area of our industry that you think needs attention or improvement? Well, uh, biasly, I say behavior mm. um, because that's my um, area of interest and something I'm incredibly passionate about. So, I mean, behavior is a growing field. Um, it's something that's obviously been around forever mm-hmm. um, along with everything else, but it's just now beginning to really get a lot of interest in the area. And I think clients are really beginning to understand its importance as well, mm. um, whether that is um, – because we're also getting a lot of human mental health um, interest. So people are beginning to understand that species of all kinds um, can have mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think behavior is an area, it's a growing field that we really need to have a shake up in the industry to get the right information out to our clients mm-hmm. um, and for ourselves as well. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So mm-hmm. um, just making sure that the information that you are providing is. Um, the most up-to-date and current. Mm-hmm. Um, but my other big thing um, is, you know, passion projects as well is recognition of the veterinary nursing field as um, a professional um, industry. So mm. we, you know, I, I feel we are professionals. We have a lot of skills and knowledge 
um, and making sure that we get recognised for that skills and, and knowledge is really, really important um, to me personally. Mm. Um, and I think lots of amazing things are happening at the moment. Um, it's super exciting about the um, voluntary registration mm. um, and, you know, there are a lot of vets um, that obviously – feel that vet nurses are incredibly important and massive assets mm. um and you know I, i've heard on the other podcasts how you um well yourself being a nurse but also how in your clinic how you respect the profession itself mm. um and i think seeing that is something that's really important for other clinics to take on board and go you know what um it, it's a team approach mm. so vet nurses are professionals and we really need to recognize that um but also from a client or community perspective um i think just getting the community to understand that vet nurses are a vital important element of the veterinary team Mm. as well and i think the first point feeds into the second point like i think if you have a clinic and um and vets who genuinely respect vet nurses and what they bring to the team i think your clients pick up on it too um and they're less likely to be saying i want to speak to the vet because um i know before we focused so much on vet nurses i mean i've always um had a great deal of respect for our profession but Um, it's only been in sort of recent years that we've really been outwardly saying on our social media and everything, look at what vet nurses do, Um, you know, aren't vet nurses an important part of the team? Um, It's only been in, I think in the first few years we were open, we did get a lot of, I only want to speak to Matt. Okay, that's great, but I want to speak to the vet. Whereas now I think clients are far less likely to say that. I think that they are quite happy to have any of our nurses ring them and say, I I got your phone message of um, how Scrappy's doing this morning. Um, I think what you should try doing is maybe try feeding this. And if that doesn't work, ring me in in a couple of hours or, you know, do we think Scrappy's in pain? How's Scrappy acting? And instead of just being like, I want to speak to Matt, they they are genuinely really happy to, to speak to our nurses and they trust that they're going to make a judgment call that's within their limitations but then feed back to the vet and say, this is what the owner said. Um, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? So, yeah, I think it's like a top-down thing that um, that clients will pick up on. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of trust. So if your vets are trusting the nurses mm. and then the clients will trust the nurses as well and um, you are able to have that complete holistic approach when it comes to coming into a clinic Mm. so you know that you are speaking to the nurse and they know exactly what they're talking about Mm. and they know their scope and they know when to hand it over to the vet and I think it's really important that as nurses as well um, we believe in our profession and we Mm. know how amazing we are Mm. and then also on the other side, know our limitations. So know where, where the line is. Definitely. Um, because it's obviously not going to get better and vets won't trust us if we are crossing that line into veterinary medicine. Um, so I think it's really, really important. Both sides, we need to mm. we need to, we need to earn the trust. Yeah. So we need to actually earn the trust there, but we also need to believe in ourselves too and have the confidence to go, no, hey, I, I am a veterinary nurse. 
and I actually do know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and this is why you should listen to me. And I, th- I absolutely, and having that confidence with the owner. And I think it's one thing too that we can do um, nurses in senior or leadership roles is to help the baby nurses identify those limits. Because I have, um, you know, a few times in my career, I've heard baby nurses on the phone um, asking questions. We need to ask questions to triage and to see at what time should they come in or, um, you know, do we need to be saying, actually, if you were going to feed him anything, between now and then I wouldn't because we might need to do X but um, sometimes I have heard baby nurses start asking questions that are leading down the diagnosis path and you need to give that feedback as a senior nurse and say okay you've heard me asking questions but there's a difference in the questions I was asking and the the um, the path you were going down so I'm not trying to get a diagnosis for the vet I'm just trying to figure out should we set up the ultrasound and should we tell them to withhold food or whatever so um, or should I say drop everything and come now so I think um, as as a group and it comes back to what you keep saying is we just all need to be talking to one another and talking about um what's going well, what's not going well, um, what can we be doing to help. And it's such a good time now for vet nurses to I guess be be becoming more visible to vets in terms of their um, importance and in terms of the ways that they can help because we have a national and international vet shortage and so many vets are working in understaffed clinics in terms of um, not enough vets for the workload and they're looking around going wow here here is this team of nurses who are saying do you want us to you know do the blood draws and run run the bloods this morning before surgery or um, do you want us to call that own and give an update for that inpatient. So I think it is a great time to be getting that recognition that starts with um, that respectful relationship with our vets of us saying, we can help, we can take some of this load, what can we do? And then that will trickle down to the clients. And I think that's a really important point that you've brought up. And I've been really fortunate to work in a clinic that does exactly that. Um, And that's probably why I stayed there for um, 10 plus years. Mm. So the clinic I worked in, the nurses were nurses, Mm. as in we did everything up to our limitations. So Mm. we would do, you know, bloods and we would run them and we would, you know, do pre-consults for the vets. So we really did leverage the time Mm. um, available and our vets were able to be vets mm-hmm. um, and they were able to get through their workload and mm-hmm. you know we would be doing six procedures a day without any concerns because we were working as a team and the nurses were able to assist the vets and the vets completely trusted the nurses in in what needed to be done mm-hmm. um, so I think it's really important that's a it's a great point that you bring up that sometimes and it, I mean it is it's it's very hard because it's going to be a cultural shift in some clinics that um, providing the nurses with that level of trust and I guess losing a little bit of control mm. if you are a veterinarian to go, you know what, my nurse is capable of this mm-hmm. and I trust them completely mm-hmm. to do this element because that's with inside their scope mm-hmm. and that allows me to focus on being a vet. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the clinic that I worked in, we got to do pre-consults and discharges and um anything and everything you could possibly imagine as a senior vet nurse. Um, And that's why 
you know, the the team ran so efficiently and mm. everyone was so happy. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, it is really important with um, – we, we can't afford to be doing that anymore with a vet shortage. We can't afford to have vets nursing if we want to be able to continue to have X number of consults and X number of surgeries booked for every day. And ultimately nurses are going to be happier if they're actually nursing exactly. um, and being trusted. So I think it's yeah. – um, it's I, I would agree it is a mega area of our industry that needs attention or improvement. But I also, even though I'm not biased, I also agree with you that behaviour is an area too. So <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's been awesome catching up with you and I've loved picking your brain um, about your stress-free pets course uh, and all of the sorts of improvements we can make. And I would encourage any nurses who are interested in behavior to really run with it because it is an area that vet nurses can really shine. And there are great resources out there like your course. Um, vet nurses can actually become accredited in the area. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So they can become a um, stress-free um, certified professional. Yeah, and also get APNAT points, yeah? Yes, they can. So it's registered for race, so international um, points. Yeah. So it's 10 hours of points, yeah. um, which can also go towards your voluntary registration if you're doing that as well. Excellent. So, yeah, check out the Stress-Free Pets course. I'll put a link to it. Um, and, yeah, and I, I also love the overall message that you've sort of imparted, which is if you've got a dream or even just a little idea, you need to just run with it, just jump in and do it. So I hope we can inspire some people to, to do the same as you have and if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the veterinary industry who would it be and what would you say oh look this is this is actually really hard for me because there's so many of them and I can't name them all <laughs> um, so as I said before I'm a talker I like to share my ideas so there's been so many people who have supported me and have just gone you know you can do this or mm. have nutted out random ideas with me so there's too many individuals to name. Um, so thank you to all of them. Mm. Um, but if I was going to select a couple, um, so I've got more than one. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a couple and I guess it's in chronological order of my career mm -hmm. progression. Um, so the first one is um, Trish Clark, who was at um, UQ. She was actually the program. I think she was actually the program developer for veterinary technology and management when it very first started. Mm -hmm. um, but she was our program coordinator and just an absolutely wonderful human being, but incredibly passionate about, so she's a veterinarian herself, but passionate about vet nurses and empowering them and upskilling them and really ensuring that they do the jobs that they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and she personally, for me, she always believed in me. She always supported everything that I did and obviously got me through uni, uh, got me through my <laughs> final year of uni, which is always a bonus. Mm. Um, so she's an incredible um, human in general. Mm -hmm. The second, um, so as I said, there's a few here. Um, the second one is in the entire team at the Madurabai Animal Hospital mm. um, because as I said, I was there for years and years and years, so over 10 years. And there's been, you know, obviously staff turnover and everything, but mm -hmm. I class them as my second family. And those guys taught me absolutely everything about the importance of culture mm. um, and teamwork and really just having a good time in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So making sure that, it, yes, you work and you do a really good job at it um, and you challenge yourself and you get upskilled and everybody is in it as a team. Mm. So, for example, you know, the vets will answer the phones um, mm. if the nurses are busy. Um, they upskill the nurses to actually do nurse work. Um, so, that team um, is just an, incredible in terms of um, culture and empowering veterinary nurses and then also allowing them to move out into 
the world. Mm. Um, so many people that worked at that clinic with me are now doing incredible things with their careers. Mm. Um, it's pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other big one is Dr. Rachel Che, um, who worked I worked with um, really closely at Green Cross. She um, not only was a mentor for me, but she was a sponsor. So um, I'm not too sure if um, if you or, or your um, listeners know too much about sponsorship versus mentors, but mentors are obviously are there to provide you with advice and support and guidance and all the rest of that sort of stuff. But a sponsor is also the person who, when you're not in the room, they talk about you and mm. um, you know help you to achieve your your goals. Mm. So Rachel um, was a massive mentor for me. Obviously, always supported me. Um, challenged me heaps and definitely pushed me to better myself, Mm -hmm. but she absolutely always had my back. Um, And I think that um, really just, I guess, epitomizes her as a person is that um, it was, it it was always about um, somebody else. So she, she really, truly, honestly did believe in me and want me to succeed. Um, So there was, there was no other um, agenda for her at all. Mm. So. Yeah, so the, uh, there's, as I said, there's many, many more people out there, but um, they're the, the three that I can think of and, and name um, individually. It's nice to have a true advocate in your corner who will jump up and speak for you, but um, I also picked up on what you said about the, um, the clinic that you worked at and the culture, and I think it – you can't just expect culture to just roll out and work. It takes a lot of effort and thought and, um, you know, it, it takes, I guess, people um, who who are at the top and guiding, you know, all of the individuals to actually say this is something that we need to think about. How can we, um, how can we show the nurses that we have their backs? Or you know what, if the phone's ringing and they're flat out, you can pick up the phone. So, I mean, it doesn't just everybody doesn't just get the message by osmosis. There is somebody um, who's thinking about it. So I take my hat off um, to that practice for creating a great culture because I know it takes time and effort, um, and it sometimes can feel like we don't have time to think about that. But it actually affects every single thing that you do, and it is really worth focusing on that's it 100 and it's that particular clinic um you know it's consistent so it hasn't it wasn't just for a year that there was an amazing culture there and you know then one person left and it all fell apart Mm. like it's consistently um incredible it doesn't matter how many new people they get through that clinic um they really have everything that they do um is all about that team culture so when you walk in the doors um you you become immersed in it. It's so. entrenched and people are yeah. passing it on to the new people because everybody loves it. So that's it. Yeah, that's um, invaluable. So, well, it's been so nice catching up with you, Serena, and I really look forward to seeing um, what you do with all of your new projects in the future because I don't imagine you're just going to be like, well, now I'm finished being, <laughs> you know, an entrepreneur who dreams big and rolls things out. I think that we're going to see amazing things. So good luck to you in everything that you do. And I'll put links um, to your programs so people can keep an eye on you too. And um, all the best. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. My pleasure, Serena. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.